Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know, if you're new here, if you're uh, visiting, uh, my name's Landon. I'm the youth uh, the assistant pastor here at True North. Uh, so our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Rex, out of town this weekend, so uh, the youth pastor gets the preaching responsibilities. Uh, if you guys don't know, the stereotype is that youth pastors are n- notoriously bad preachers. So I take offense to that stereotype. So hopefully I won't be... Uh, Hopefully I won't uh, fulfill that stereotype for you. All right, before we get started, um, I just want to spend some time in prayer. Um, just praying for all of us here that uh, the Lord would be willing through his Holy Spirit to do a work in us. Um, pray that our minds and hearts would be open. Um, and then just praying for myself as well that <laughs> I would be able to speak God's word clearly, um, accurately, uh, and then with conviction as well. All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord, trusting in his blood and his righteousness alone. God, knowing that we have nothing uh, to bring before you on our own. Um, So God, again, we just come to you in his name. And we ask, Father, that you'd be present with us here this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and changing hearts and minds and lives today. Father, as I speak from your word, I pray that you would guide me. I pray that it would be uh, your word, not my own. I pray that uh, you would speak through me. And God, that uh, the power of your word uh, through the Holy Spirit would do the work uh, in changing lives this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so for those of you who don't know, uh, some of you probably do, uh, I'm a Michigan fan. I knew that was coming, so I had already prepared a pause to let you get that out of the way. So if I just lost all credibility in your eyes, I apologize. Uh, just bear with me, please. I hope it won't be too bad. Um, but I'm a Michigan fan, and so a few years ago, I had the opportunity to cross an item off my bucket list. Uh, it was 2011. It was the Ohio State-Michigan game, and it was in Ann Arbor that year. And so if you're a Michigan fan, you know this is a big year. Uh, because if you remember 2011, that was Michigan's one good season in like 15 years. That was Ohio State's one mediocre season in, you know, 50 years or whatever. Uh, and so as a Michigan fan, I knew, like, if Michigan is ever going to beat Ohio State ever, like, this is the year. The game's in Ann Arbor. Michigan's good. Ohio State's average. It's got to happen. So I had the opportunity to go. Uh, and again, if you remember the game, it was a great game. Uh, I was high scoring, it was was back and forth the whole time. Some of you Ohio State fans are sitting there just kind of mumbling under your breath because you remember it, but that's okay. Um, But again, I had the opportunity to go, it was a great game, the whole game. I was actually in the student section, so I was surrounded by thousands of other uh, University of Michigan students. It was was a lot of fun. Uh, About two minutes left in the game, Michigan is up three, it's 37-34. Okay? And the whole stadium knows, all 115,000 people, we all know. All right, because Michigan's got the ball, they're inside the Ohio State Five, up three. Everybody knows. Michigan punches this one in here, like it's game over. Like, we're going to win, and we're, I mean, it's going to be awesome because we'll finally beat Ohio State. Everybody knows. And so, with every snap of the ball, the anticipation builds. You can just feel it. It's like, okay, we're getting closer, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. So eventually we're going to score, and it's, oh, it's going to be awesome. So finally, all right, they snap the ball. 
running back takes the handoff, makes a move, gets hit, and then stumbles into the end zone. And as you can imagine, in that moment, the whole stadium just erupts. I mean, in the student section, I mean, we're like jumping up and down. We're hugging complete strangers. All of a sudden, we're best friends. We're like weeping tears of joy. Like, I can't, I can't believe it. We're actually going to beat Ohio State. We did it. Even though we didn't do anything, we just watched the game. And, you know, you guys know how it goes if you've ever been to games. So we're celebrating. We're going crazy. And then in the midst of our celebration, all of a sudden we hear a voice uh, come over the speakers in the stadium, uh, and it says this. The previous play is under review. So if you know football, you know that means uh, they, they called the touchdown on the field, and now they're going to send it up to the booth to review it. Because uh, apparently they, they didn't really know if he scored. They wanted to make sure. And at that point, I, I really didn't even care. I heard him say that, and I was like, yeah, like, okay, whoa, whatever. I mean, like, I watched him score. I, I saw with my eyes, like, he crossed the goal line. He was in. There's no way he wasn't in. He scored. Like, I didn't even doubt. So I was just, like, singing, you know, with the rest of the crowd. Didn't even care. After a couple minutes, he had done with the review, comes back down to the head official, comes back over uh, the PA system, and says this. After further review... The runner's knee was down prior to crossing the goal line. The ball will be placed at the one-yard line. <laughs> and when he said that, I was in shock. I was like, are you kidding me? I, I couldn't believe it. Along with everyone else in the stadium, of course, everyone's booing. Um, all kinds of choice words being thrown out by all kinds of people in the stadium. Uh, but again, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how could they overturn that call? I watched the guy score. Now, granted, I'm three-quarters of the way up in the stadium. It's kind of a big stadium if you've ever been there. But I watched him score. There's no way he didn't get in the end zone. He was in. I watched it. Again, if you remember the game, you might know the rest of the story. Michigan ended up settling for a long field goal on that drive. Uh, they, up, they did end up winning the game, so it was a happy ending for me. It all worked out in the end. Um, but even after the game, I was still stuck on that call. I was like, yeah, we won. It was awesome. But I still can't believe they overturned that touchdown. Like, what, like, what did they see? I watched them score. He was in. Uh, so later that weekend, went home, and I DVR'd the game. So I watched it later, because that's what you do when you go to games. You DVR it, then watch it later so you can reminisce instantly. You know, I remember that play, right? <laughs> so I'm watching it, and it gets to that play, that touchdown call that was overturned. Uh, and if you ever watch a football game on TV, you know that when they review a play and, and you see it on TV, like they have all the perfect camera angles. So they can get like down here and like this angle and over there. They can zoom in really far so then they can actually see what actually happened in the play. They can see the reality of the play for what it really was. And uh, sure enough, I watched it on TV. I see all the camera angles and uh, they made the right call. <laughs> His knee was down before he scored. And I didn't want to admit it, uh, but again, I, I couldn't deny the evidence. It was right there in front of me. I saw the play for what it really was through the camera angles. He didn't score. But during the game, I was so sure. I, I, I could, I, again, I watched him score. I was I couldn't, there's no way he didn't score. How could they overturn it? All right, see, when it came down to it, I had a false assurance about what happened on that play. 
right? because I really couldn't see it for what it was. I thought I could, but I really didn't have a good angle. Again, I was three-quarters way up in the stadium. I, I really couldn't tell you know, what the reality of the play was, what really happened on it. Sometimes I wonder how many Christians have a false assurance about their lives as Christians. See, I think a lot of Christians look really good from a distance. Like, people will observe uh, our lives and, and they'll see the, the, the good things we do and the, the good people that we are. And they'll say, oh yeah, they're in. Like, I can, I can see it. Like, I can observe their lives. They're in. There's no way they're not in. I mean, I can tell. But if we're to zoom in on your heart right, and get those perfect camera angles to see it for what it really is, what would we find? Right, would we find that the life you're living, the, the good things you're doing, the, the good person you're being, all those good things, would we find that those are flowing from a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel, that has truly believed in Christ and been saved and now is living uh, out of that? Or, if we zoomed in on your heart, we could see it for what it really is, would we find that you're really not a Christian at all? That you really haven't seen uh, the glory of Christ in the gospel? You actually really haven't truly believed in Jesus and been saved? And you're still trusting in your own righteousness, still trusting in your own uh, good works, hoping that they'll outweigh the bad eventually. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one or you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone in the back would love to bring you one. So as you guys are turning there, Revelation chapter 3, let me give you a little, of, uh, give you a little bit of background in a context, what's going on around this chapter. Uh, so in Revelation 2 and 3, what we see is we see Jesus addressing seven different churches in the New Testament era. Okay, so starting in 2 and then through 3, uh, he, again, he addresses the seven, seven churches. These are real historical churches uh, existing in different cities uh, throughout the region in that era. And so what Jesus is doing is he's offering commendation and rebuke to these churches. So he's telling them, in other words, what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well. He's telling them the good things about them, and he's giving them the bad things about them. Okay, he's giving them the attaboy, you know, good job, keep it up. Then he's saying, all right, this, you, no, this needs to stop, repent of this, turn from this way, right, and turn to me. So that's what we see in Revelation 2 and 3. We won't read all those chapters now. I'll let you guys do that some other time. Uh, but for now, let's focus on Revelation chapter 3. So up to this point, Jesus has addressed the first six churches. And if you read through it, you'll notice that Jesus has something good to say to each church. Some he has some you know, bad things. He gives them some rebuke. But at least to every church to this point, he gives them a good thing. He says, good job for this. You're doing this well. Keep it up. And then we get to the final church, um, the church in Laodicea. That said, let's start reading in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. 
Uh, so Jesus says this in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. All right, let's stop right here because this verse is extremely important because of what it says about Jesus. Right? And everything that he says after this is kind of built on the foundation of verse 14. So notice it says he's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here's what that means. When it says he's the beginning of God's creation, that doesn't mean Jesus was uh, created. He wasn't the first thing or person or object created by God. Uh, It means, as we see in Colossians 1, John 1, and Hebrews 1, that all things were created through him and for him and by him. So so Jesus was the, the agent of creation. So he's being... God himself. Right? He was in the beginning with God. On top of that, again, he's the, the, the sovereign ruler of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We know that from Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, so that's what it's talking about when it says, uh, I'm the beginning of God's creation. On top of that, he's the faithful and true witness. Okay, so here's what this means. As the sovereign ruler of the universe, Jesus sees things for the way they are. Right? He's got the perfect camera angle. He can zoom in as far as he wants. He's not, he's not relegated to a you know, bloody nose section seat, you know, trying to <laughs> see from a distance, trying to discern the way things are. No, he knows everything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He can see everything for the way it is. He upholds the universe by the word of his mouth. You can't pull a fast one on Jesus. He knows. He knows our hearts. We can't fool him with our good deeds when in reality our hearts are far from him. On top of that, again, he's a faithful and true witness. So not only does he have the ability to to see the reality of our hearts and the reality of all things for the way they really are, but he also has the authority to make the call. And that call is going to be right every time. Right? Because there's no deceit in his mouth. Right? He's perfectly holy and just and righteous. He's going to make the right call. So if Jesus makes a call, we, we can't argue with it. That's the way it is. I don't know about you, but I've, I don't want to argue with the, the creator of the universe. That's, I think I'd lose. I don't know. Just a, just a hunch. Uh, So with this in mind, verse 14 is our foundation. Uh, What does he say to the church in Laodicea? So let's keep reading in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So once again, Jesus commands the church in Laodicea for nothing. He doesn't give them any attaboys. There's nothing good to say to them. But what's his rebuke? He says, I know your works. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're lukewarm. So what Jesus is doing is he's comparing uh, the spiritual condition of this church to water. Right, so think of water. Right? Hot water is good. Right? It has many uses. It's, I mean, hot coffee, 
I don't drink coffee, but people tell me it's good when it's hot. I don't know. I mean, think hot tub, awesome, hot water, right? It doesn't get much better than that. Cold water, refreshing on a hot day. I think iced tea, lemonade. People like iced coffee, I guess. I don't know. Cold tub, not quite as awesome as a hot tub, but still really useful, right? If you are in sports, <laughs> you've probably used that, you know. Oh, but the point is, hot water, good, useful. Cold water, good, useful. Okay, likewise, if we are spiritually hot or cold, that's good. Right? That's a good thing, useful, acceptable to Jesus. Lukewarm water, right? Not good. Have you ever taken a drink of like a water bottle that's been sitting out of the fridge too long, like in a car? You take a drink and it's lukewarm. It's terrible. Have you ever sit in, I mean, when you're little, you take a bath, you sit in the water too long, it just gets really like, it's not hot anymore, it's just lukewarm. That's terrible. And so what Jesus is saying, he's, again, he's comparing their spiritual condition to water, saying, again, spiritually hot, good. Spiritually cold, good. Spiritually lukewarm, unacceptable to me. Look what he says. I will spit you out of my mouth. I, I, and I don't know any way of reading that text to make that a positive thing. And quite honestly, when I read that, I mean, that, that's a pretty scary text, is it not? Right? If you, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, we, we can talk about being lukewarm spiritually all we want. But I, don't, I think if we don't get really practical with it and kind of lay out what that looks like and on a day-to-day basis... And uh, I don't know if it's going to do us much good. So what does that look like? What does a lukewarm life look like? Uh, there's a book out there by a guy named Francis Chan. You might have heard of him. He's relatively well-known. Uh, the book's called Crazy Love. Some of you might have read it. Again, it's a relatively well-known b- book. Um, but the whole book is about being overwhelmed by a relentless God, right? Just being absolutely overwhelmed by who God is uh, and the fact that he loves us. There's one chapter in the book titled Profile of the Lukewarm. So if you've read it, in that chapter what Francis does is uh, he kind of lays out a very practical test for what lukewarm Christianity looks like. Uh, And and I think it's a very good test. Um, He uses a lot of scripture to back it up. Uh, and and it's very thorough in the book. And so I think it's worth walking through at least a few of the things he says. Right? What does lukewarm Christianity look like? As we we walk through this, I would just encourage us to do um, some pretty serious introspection. I mean, the stakes are high, right? Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those are high stakes. And so if we're not willing to seriously examine ourselves, then I'm concerned. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I think we all need to do that. All Christians, I think we do. To avoid having a false assurance. 
Right? We don't want to have that false assurance like the Laodiceans. We don't want to say we're good, we've prospered, we're rich, we need nothing, when in reality we're lukewarm and therefore going to be spit out of Jesus' mouth. I know it's easy when we, people go through stuff like this to rationalize, to kind of justify ourselves and say, I, 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 that's not me. Even, even though we feel the conviction of it, like sometimes we justify like, no, cause that, that's not me because like, I do this and not this. It's kind of like not really like that, but I, you know, I'm c- kind of this way. I know it's really easy to do that. Um, but again, the stakes are high. Um, so as we do this, again, I would just encourage you, take it seriously, do some introspection. So that being said, let's look at what Francis Chan says. Uh, first thing, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It is what's expected of them. It's what they believe uh, good Christians do. So they go. Uh, Isaiah 29:13. if you want to turn there quick, I think it's worth seeing. Uh, once you're there, Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet Isaiah says this. Um, and the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Right? He says, The people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Is it possible that every single week all over the world, thousands or millions of Christians go to church every week because that's the good Christian thing to do and that's just their routine, what they've always done, and in in reality, they're only offering lip service to the Lord. Their hearts are far from him. Next thing on the list. Uh, Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old one. Have you guys ever seen this in little kids? Like they do something wrong and they get caught in the act and you say apologize and they go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? They're not really sorry for it. They're only sorry because they got caught and they're going to be punished. When it comes down to it, they're going to keep doing whatever it was that they uh, just got caught doing. They're not really sorry for it. They don't, they don't grieve the fact that they just did whatever it was. They're just sorry because they got caught. So they, you know, they say they're sorry and they move on with their lives. And, and what he's saying is a lot of lukewarm Christians, we do the same thing with our sin. All right, God, forgive me for my sin. I know I shouldn't have done that. When it comes down to it, we don't, we don't hate our sin. We just hate the fact that we're going to be punished for it. We don't grieve the fact that we sinned and that we grieve the heart of God. We just regret the fact that he, we got caught and we're going to be punished for it. Next one. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they don't act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus had some pretty difficult sayings and demanded some pretty difficult things 
of his disciples. And I think what a lot of people do is, again, we, we call ourselves Christians, and we, again, like he said, we assume that, that those are Jesus' commandments, you know, to uh, whatever it may be, sell everything. That's not, that's not for us. That's just for, you know, the, the, the extreme, the, the radical Christians. You know, we, we, call, we call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they're nowhere as near as horrible as the guy down the street. All right, you see people do this all the time. I, I never, I haven't murdered anybody. Like, I'm not a bad person. As if that's what qualifies us to being a bad person. You know, nothing else is. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? We all do that. Uh, lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he's indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, a section of their money, and a section of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Again, I think I see this one a lot as I observe uh, just Christians all over the country, any, anywhere, anywhere. Right? A lot of people call themselves Christians, but when it comes down to it, when they accept Jesus, they're just kind of throwing him in with everything else in their life, right? Just, he's just another piece of the pie, right? Got my work piece, my fun piece, whatever piece, and then my Jesus piece. Uh, next one. A lukewarm people feel, feel secure because they attend church made a profession of faith at age 12, were baptized, come from a Christian family, vote Republican, or live in America. Just as the prophets in the Old Testament warned Israel that they were not safe just because they lived in the land of Israel, so we're not safe just because we wear the label of Christian or because some people persist in calling us a Christian nation. Okay, all those things he listed at the beginning are good things. I don't want to come across saying that they're not good things. All of those are good things. Some of you might disagree with voting Republican. I don't know. I don't even know where I stand personally. Whatever. <laughs> That's a stereotype, isn't it? Right? In America. But again, those are good things. But for some people, those are just kind of the, the, the checklist items, right? I did this, 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 so I'm good. Right? Just crossing the items off the list, and then I'm good. Right? If those things are flowing from a true heart of faith as believed in Jesus, good. If they're not, if they're just crossing items off the list, if those are just ways and means of offering lip service to the Lord and in reality our hearts are far from him, then I'm concerned. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't, they don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they're in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Once again, the things he lists there are good things, and there's nothing wrong with those. I think the question is, are we trusting 
in those things? Is our, is our hope set in those things rather than in Christ? The last one I'll read is this. He says, Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than average. But besides that, they really aren't different from your typical unbeliever. They equate partially sanitized lives with holiness, but they couldn't be more wrong. When it comes down to it, a lukewarm Christian really isn't any different from a non-Christian. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Again, I think this is worth seeing. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, you're going to look at verses 21 to 23. And this might be the scariest passage in the entire Bible to me. It is pretty scary. <laughs> Again, so Jesus is speaking here, Matthew 7, and here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what the scariest word in that whole text is? It's in verse 22. Fourth word, many. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not prophesy? Did we not go to church? Did we not do all of these things in your name? And he'll, Jesus says, I'll declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, many. He doesn't, he doesn't say just a few. On that day, there will be, you know, be a couple people, they'll come say to me, did we not do this? And say, I'll say, depart from me. No, he says, Many. And is it possible that throughout the world, I think roughly one-third of the world calls itself Christian. One-third of the people in the world label themselves as Christians. They, they think they're in. And Jesus says many. There will be many who say to me. Is it possible that thousands of those people in the world, if not millions, I don't know, will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and this and this? And he'll say to them, depart from me. Here's what really scares me about this too. I think the thing that scares me the most about this passage and what Jesus says here is knowing that we're not immune to this here in Wauseon, Ohio, or in Northwest Ohio. We're not immune to it. And I think that's what scares me. And, and so I can't, sometimes I, I, I drive through the area or just walk through town or whatever, and I'll think, all these people, many of themselves call, calling themselves Christians, but is it possible that their assurance is false? 
that Jesus will say to them, depart from me on that day. That in reality, they're, they're lukewarm. Right? They're not hot, they're not cold, they're just lukewarm, and they're going to be spit out of his mouth. The, the, again, the thought that we're not immune to that in Wauseon, Ohio, that scares me. And what might scare me even more is, is knowing that we're not even immune to that here in True North Church. And none of our churches in our community are immune to it. And so is it possible that week after week in Wauseon, Ohio, or, or Delta, or Archbold, or Pettisville, or Fayette, or wherever, hundreds of people go to church and sit in chairs and listen to sermons and do whatever, And they're lukewarm, right? And they're not in. And they think they are. I'm telling you, this, this, this will eat at me. I will walk through town or run through town and just think like, oh, I can, I just wonder how many of these people. And I feel the burden of it. This subject is one I'm very familiar with. And I'm very passionate about it, if you can't tell. Because this is my story. All right, listen, if you know me, a lot of you don't know me, I grew up in town here, and I grew up going to church every Sunday, pretty much. I knew all the right words. I knew the whole routine. I could recite to you the Apostles' Creed. I could recite to you two versions of the Lord's Prayer. I could sing the songs, I knew the words, I could recite to you the prayers, all those things. Uh, if you knew me growing up, I was a good kid. I did the right things. Uh, I was respectful in school, respectful to coaches. I was, I was disciplined, got good grades. Uh, in general, did what I was supposed to do. I, I was friendly, I was nice to people, got along with people all right. And if you would have examined my life from afar, you would have been sure I was in. People would have asked you, hey, well, you know, what do you think, Landon? He in? They would have been like, oh, yeah, good to go. He's in. Not a chance. I can see his life with my own eyes. Yeah, he's in. But the reality was, like in Isaiah 29, 13, I gave lip service to the Lord week after week when my heart was far from God. I probably would have told you that I believed in Jesus, but I wouldn't have said it with very much confidence. Hey, do you believe in Jesus? He died, you know, lived a perfect life, died, rose again for your sins. Yeah, 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 sure, I believe that. Sure, whatever. That gets me in, okay. Now, I'm not... This is, this is my own fault, okay? This, this is my own hard and stubborn heart. Okay, I don't want to blame any other entity outside myself. Right? This is my own hard heart. And so I lived, I lived most of my life growing up like that. And finally, summer before my junior year of high school, I went to a Christian camp for a week. So one night at the camp, the speaker began speaking about being lukewarm. And he went through a very similar test to what I just went through. A little more detail, but he went through very similar things. And so as he started out, you know, he says the first thing, whatever it was, and even then, I could feel the weight of conviction from the Holy Spirit just pressing in on me. You know, that moment where I know, like, ooh, that's me, but I didn't want to admit it, and again, I was justifying myself. 
So I started out there, and then every single step he would go through, it just hit me square in the face. And I could feel the conviction, right, weighing more and more and more and more. And it got to the point where I could no longer rationalize. I couldn't justify myself. He would say something, lukewarm people, this, 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 and I would sit there in my head, you know, think, that's me. That describes me to a T. And so finally, it had been building and building and building. And then he got to the end, and he said something like I said at the end. And he said the words, uh, when it comes down to it, a lukewarm believer really isn't any different from a non-believer. And it was in that moment that, I mean, it clicked for me. Like something in my mind, in my heart, just snapped. It, it, was like a, it was like a dam breaking. It had just been building up, and finally it just broke, and I got it for the first time in my life. And, and for the first time in my life, I've been going to church all the years, but the whole Christianity thing finally made sense to me for the first time. I finally got it. Right, for the first time in my life, I finally saw that I was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Right, I finally saw that this whole Christianity thing wasn't about just, just going to church and just doing the right thing and just trying to be a, a good person and live a good life. Right, I, I realized it's about fully surrendering my life to Jesus Christ, right? the one for whom and by whom all things were created, the one who knit me together in the womb. It's about fully surrendering my life to him. But I realize the whole Christianity thing is about just making Jesus a part of the pie of my life. Jesus is the whole pie. Right? He's, he's everything. Everything else is encompassed in him. Right? Everything else is a piece of him. He's the whole thing. But I realize the whole Christianity thing isn't just about being a good person and um, living a good life, you know, getting good grades, going to a good college so that I can graduate and get a good job and then I can marry a good person, and then have good kids and a good family. I finally realized life is about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And so it was in that moment, that night at that camp, you know, 16 years old, I put away my lukewarmness. As, as the first time in my life, I believed that I, I truly believed in Jesus and trusted in him for salvation. And I can tell you, my life has not been the same since. So I'll invite, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward now. In closing, I just want to make a few points um, just abundantly clear. So I don't want to give you the wrong idea about anything. Uh, number one, I, I'm not claiming to know anybody's uh, salvation. Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to make that presumption. Okay, and so, so if you're in here and say you've believed in Christ and you've been saved at whatever age that was, whenever, however that happened, good. I don't want to call that into question. I believe God wants us to have assurance. And so if that's you and you are a Christian in here, then good. Have assurance. 
Because again, I think God wants us to have that. I also think God doesn't want us to have false assurance. I think he wants those people who truly believe in Christ to have assurance that they are in fact saved. And then those people who are claiming to be Christians who are not saved, sometimes they have false assurance. And so, again, I'm not trying to make presumptions in anyone's salvation. I'm not trying to tell anybody they're not saved. You know, Jesus knows, he's the faithful and true witness, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Second thing, I'm in no way promoting works salvation. It might sound like it coming across uh, through some of those things that we can be saved uh, by what we do, by doing good works, whatever they may be. Um, Scripture's just crystal clear on this point. By works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. Uh, We're saved by uh, grace alone through faith alone. So I'm not promoting works salvation. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. And so what I am saying is this. In the words of John Piper, uh, the faith that saves is not a lukewarm, half-hearted faith. Uh, And sometimes I think people do that. Okay, I'm saved by faith, but sometimes that's a lukewarm, half-hearted faith. The faith that saves is not a lukewarm, half-hearted faith. Saving faith is the kind of faith that just gives it your saving faith is not the kind of faith that just gives, gives Jesus a portion of your life. It's not the kind of faith that makes Jesus another piece of the pie. It's not the kind of faith that just throws Jesus in along with everything else. Saving faith is the kind of faith that finds a pearl of great value and sells everything it has to buy that one pearl. Saving faith is the kind of faith that puts its hand to the plow and doesn't look back. It's the kind of faith that causes a man to lose his life, to give it up, that ultimately he may find it. Uh, Saving faith is a kind of faith that echoes what Paul said in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Saving faith is a kind of faith that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Saving faith is the kind of faith that says, I have counted all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So I'm not promoting work salvation. We're not saved by works, never will be. I am saying that a lukewarm response to the gospel is no response at all, and that a lukewarm faith is no faith at all. Third and final thing before I close. I'm preaching against a constant condition, a state of lukewarmness. If if we're believers in Christ, uh, listen, all true believers will go through periods of lukewarmness. We might fall into that and kind of fade into subtle periods of lukewarmness at times. And I think that's normal. And so if that's you, again, if you're a believer, not trying to call into question your salvation. uh, But again, sometimes we just fall into those ruts of lukewarmness And so I want to jolt us out of that. Now, others of Inhue in here might be in another camp. Some of you, again, maybe you're not a true believer and have never truly believed in Christ, and you don't just fade into periods of lukewarmness. You are lukewarm. Like, that's the condition and state of your heart. And so listen, for some of you, my story might be similar to your story. 
Some of you might have been playing the game for years. I don't know. I'm not claiming to know. You might have uh, gone to church for a while. Maybe, maybe you've served in the church. Maybe you've memorized the prayers. Maybe you've said and done the right things. You've been a, a good person. And from the outside, you look great. Right? You look rich. It looks like you've prospered and you need nothing. Right? But again, if we could zoom in on your heart and see it for what it is, would we find out, would we see that you're lukewarm? In reality, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And, and, and so if that's you, man, I told my story. I know, I know that feeling, that weight of conviction where you can no longer rationalize and you know, like, that's me, and you can just feel, like, the, the burning sensation. Man, and if that's you, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, put away your lukewarmness for good. Right, buy from the Lord Jesus, right, gold refined by fires so that you may be rich. Right, white garments that you might clothe yourself and cover your nakedness. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And so if that's you today, may we rejoice because salvation has come to this place, maybe for the first time for some people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you that we can worship in your presence and in the presence of one another. And Lord, we thank you for saving us by grace through our faith in Christ. And Father, I pray for those people in here this morning who are true believers, who are your children, who have been justified in your sight and made righteous. God, I pray that you would shock us out of those lukewarm periods we fall into. Lord, let us chase after you with reckless abandon. And Father, I pray for anybody in here who doesn't know Christ. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you do a work in their hearts right now, Lord. God, that they would no longer be able to rationalize or, or justify uh, on belief. But God, for the first time in their life, they might believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, we love you, and I pray that now as we worship, God, we would just worship you with hearts on fire. That we won't just offer lip service to you, but that we would uh, sing your praises from our hearts. Again, Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.